Let's pray. Lord, may your word today be to us a compass. May it align our hearts to your great truth of grace and mercy found in your Son. The victory that was won by him in his death on the cross and the promise that is to come to which we set our eyes again that he might come back to claim what he has won, to set right and renew what has been made wrong. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This Advent, uh, we're going to take some time to uh, consider the prophet Isaiah. We have readings from Isaiah all four Sundays of Advent, uh, and we're going to focus on those readings because as Drew mentioned, Advent is this, uh, this time of in-between where we look uh, forward to Christ's second coming, his second Advent, right? But we also uh, look back with great thanksgiving and rejoicing at his first Advent, uh, a more humble uh, beginning in, in, in a manger uh, scene in Bethlehem. And so uh, we are going to take a look at what Isaiah has to say um, about uh, these um, advents of Jesus, his first coming and his second coming in this season of intentional waiting and anticipation and hope and joy for what God is going to do. Now, as we jump into Isaiah chapter 2 this morning, I, I want to maybe uh, ask for your indulgence. So let's begin with a little exercise. I want you to imagine yourself floating on a vast and endless sea. The waters are turbulent. And they're pushing you around with great force, maybe even prejudice, right? One way and another. And you're worried for your life. What exactly are you going to do? There's nothing but water and turbulent water to be found at that. As panic becomes flooded with despair, you notice that there's a slightly different pull to the current. The water in its boiling rage appears in some way to be moving a different direction, receding even. And then there, right in front of you, right before your eyes, you see emerging from the depths this ever-growing mound of solid rock right there in the midst of those turbulent waters. Now think for a moment, what is this place to you? Right? It's nothing short of your salvation right? from these waters of chaos. It's the highest peak of all. It's a, a stable place of refuge. If God exists, then surely this is the place to find him, right? This place of stability in this scene of great chaos and danger. This lone island of oasis in the midst of a watery abyss. Imagine God does dwell there. And he plants a garden. In fact, a lush and resplendent garden teeming with life. And he teaches you how to, how to care for it. He teaches you how to care for others who care for it. And as the waters recede, more and more of this stable ground is found. It's more than you need, much more, much more. And from your vantage point in the garden of the tallest mountain, you see that there's room even for entire nations to dwell. And there are other mountains, sure, but none as tall as the one on which you currently stand. And none, certainly, with a garden like the one that God has planted here. And you begin to see the paths that form the routes that give you access to these 
distant places. But even more importantly, you recognize that they give access for those places to this beautiful garden where God himself is present, teaching the way he works so we can live the way we're made, as Eugene Peterson says. Okay, now here is an important question coming out of this little exercise of visualization. What biblical story do you think I'm telling? Right? If you think it's a recap of the creation story from Genesis, then you are, in fact, right. God parts the waters of chaos above and below and produces from them this dry ground. And he populates this dry ground with, with plants and animals, all sorts of life, all sorts of things. Every, every ounce of that uh, stable ground is life-sustaining and life-producing. And on this high ground, according to Genesis, God also plants a garden, and he places the first humans in it. He teaches them how to tend it. He teaches them how to tend for each other in relationship to one another and to him. And we know how this story goes, right? There's this rebellion that occurs in the garden, the Consequences of that rebellion uh, proliferate as disobedience in the first generation leads to murder and death in the second, and even greater treachery in the generations that follow. So, yes, I am in one sense telling, retelling the creation story, but I want you to open your Bibles or look along in your uh, bulletins, however you can get to the scriptures from Isaiah chapter 2, beginning with the first verse today, because it's not the only, uh, the creation story is not the only story that's being told here in this little exercise of ours. You see, Isaiah is prophesying, he finds himself with the word of God in the middle of the story, when, when sin has thrown the ordered world back into chaos. God's holy people have produced unholy kings. The promised land that they inherited as one nation has been split into two. The people's defiance of God's law has left them no better for having received it, it would seem. They've become greedy and self-indulgent, cynical, and they're blinded from seeing the growing threat of foreign powers on their borders. So it's from this vantage point, in the middle of the story, when things are about to get much worse for God's people, that God appoints Isaiah to declare God's mercy in the midst of his wrath by describing the end of the story. It shall come to pass in the latter days, Isaiah says, in the latter days, when God's ordered kingdom will be reestablished here on earth. Now notice how in some ways Isaiah picks back up where the creation story leaves off before Adam and Eve bring sin into the story, take things off the rails. Look at verse 2. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. God's dwelling place is restored to its highest place, the first and greatest place of refuge when the chaos of those waters recedes from earth when the chaos of sin recedes from the earth. There we see God's dwelling place. There's some irony here to these words because the, the temple mount, the Mount Zion, was in fact in no way the largest mountain uh, to be had. But notice 
Notice in verse 2, as Isaiah says, that this mountain is the house of the Lord, and it shall be established as the highest of the mountains. God will make it great for various and different reasons. Continuing with verse 2, we see the creation story woven in again as all the nations shall flow to it, Isaiah says. All the nations, not just God's chosen people, Israel, but all people of every nation, of every race, of every generation, will make their way to this dwelling place of God. And what will they do there? Well, the next verse gives us the answer. Verse 3, many people shall come and they shall say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. You see, God himself is teaching his ways so that they will learn how to live in accordance with his created purposes for them and for the rest of his creation as he intended for the very first humans in that very first mountaintop garden temple where he placed Adam and Eve where he gave them the direction to cultivate the land and to use it, to have dominion over the animals. And then in verse 4, we see, as Isaiah continues, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. We see human energy is once again directed at tending the garden to produce harvest, as God had originally designed. There's another point to be made here as well. There is a continuation of the creation story as we've just described, as we have picked up the themes in Isaiah's prophecy here in chapter 2. But there's also corrections to account for the wounds that sin has left behind. Right, God himself sits as judge between the nations. Verse 4, he shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. So we see God himself sitting in judgment. No longer will we seek out our own perverted justice against another at the expense of one another. But instead, it's God's arbitration that is so complete and wonderful that war itself will fade from our collective memory as instruments of war are remade into instruments of harvest. See, this point is that that God doesn't amputate that part of his creation that has become sick and infested. He doesn't bring back the waters of chaos to then begin again in a new creation, a do-over if you will, right? Instead, our corruption of God's good plan is somehow turned around into something that is useful, even good. Now, God did, at one time, we read in Genesis again, he did at one time bring the waters back. He preserved only Noah and the contents of Noah's ark. But notice what God says, once those waters receded again, once the animals left the ark, once Noah offered up a sacrifice to God, God responds by saying, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart 
is evil from his youth. God says, it's not destruction that I will bring again. No, it's renewal that must come. But first, but first the evil intentions of man's heart must be addressed. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Let's ask the ever pragmatic question, why does any of this even matter? There was a lively discussion in the car ride back home from St. Simon Island in Georgia, where we had our clergy retreat. Um, this conversation centered around the migratory patterns of waterfowl, believe it or not. You never know what you're going to get when you get a bunch of priests and clergy and deacons in a car together for long stretches of time. You see, the speaker at our retreat had used this illustration of migrating birds to make the point that before uh, these animals can begin navigating the thousands of miles that they must navigate over diverse terrain, they first have to have this keen perception of their orientations. They have to orient themselves before they can begin the process of navigation, was his point. They need to know where they are. They need to know what direction they are pointed in. They need to know what direction they need to be pointed in, what direction they need to head. Friends, let me put before you that Advent is, in fact, a season of orientation for us. Right? It's a time for us to sit back and to, to take stock of our current situation, including its harshness, the, the reality in which we live, the reality of a broken world, one that has been won by Christ and yet still labors in pain. It's time to, in this Advent, to take stock of this situation in which we find ourselves. And when we do, we are reminded of our world's need of redeeming and of our need for a Savior. It's time to look back at what God has done at his gracious intervention in our lives through his Son, so that we might know where we stand. It's a time for us to look at the direction in which we are headed in God's story. I want you to look then at the similarity to Isaiah's day. Isaiah's speaking, as we said, from the middle of the story to a people who can look back to God's gracious intervention, which he sent when he sent the prophet Moses to rescue his people from their captivity in Egypt. And he's dealt graciously with them. He's taught them how to be holy. He's given them the law to do that. He's bringing them, uh, even bringing them to the land that he promised them. But, but they still remain captive to that evil that resides in their hearts. The law proves to be too big of a challenge for them. Part of Isaiah's message is that even though he has been given the word of God to speak to the people of God, in fact, it will only prove to harden their resolve against God. Isaiah says it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better. This promised land that you have inherited is going to be taken from you. You're going to be exiles from your own land. And your hearts are going to be left yearning, waiting for that prophet like Moses to come, the Messiah himself. He warns them of the wrath of God, but he also remembers the mercy of God as well. He, a prophet, reminds them of that greater prophet that is to come, that prophet like Moses, 
who God will appoint for the even greater rescue plan of saving God's people from themselves by addressing the evil that remains in their hearts. And so Isaiah lives as a prophet in the time between Moses and the prophet like Moses, the coming Messiah. Friends, the call to action for us this Advent is often the hardest thing for a Christian to do. We're called to wait on the Lord. But we're called to do so with an active intention by remembering the promises that he has made and fulfilled by sending his son to be born in the humble manger and what that son would go on to achieve on our behalf. Something that no empire of this world has ever seen has been able to achieve a lasting kingdom, a, a lasting uh, kingdom of God here on earth. Friends, now is the time for us to heed the warnings of the prophets and to anticipate with great joy the visions of God's future mercy which they describe. And we do so not without reason. Right? We're standing on the confirmations of their prophetic words that have already come to pass. Even more, we stand on the word of God himself, God made flesh, who first came as a child to free us from captivity and who will come again to dwell in the garden with us, that he might teach us his ways and that we might walk in his paths. Friends, this Advent, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us remember who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. Amen.